is the consensus of professional economists that may have technical objections to some of the concepts used in the document. I take it as a document written by religious authorities that do not need to be precise in the use of economic terminology. I try to translate the concerns as expressed by religious leaders and to provide comment as an economist. I do not address also the theological concerns as I read the document as one addressed to economic policy makers and market participants. I consequently do not aim at giving an extensive commentary, but just a few opinions. In what follows, I quote freely and mix exact quotes with my own expressions. My commentary is my own. Although I explain in my words what I understand of the Holy See uh, document. The Holy See advocates for regulation of financial markets and they have, as they have a great importance in everyday life. It also advocates for clear ethical foundation for them. Both points are laudable and in agreement with responsible market participants. It recognizes that ethics must <coughs> accept the proper disciplinary technical knowledge of economics and finance. It advocates integral development as the materialization of the common good that the church, universal sacrament of salvation, aims to instill in every human realm as a fruit of justice and charity. The church then has the responsibility to call everybody to ethical behavior based on liberty, truth, justice, and solidarity. The Holy See rightly condemns predatory activities and selfishness and expresses categorically that money must serve, not rule. It also condemns simplistic visions of human nature that reduce man, for example, to be a consumer or that reduces the value of people to the value of their income. In the same regard, those that reduce the objective of human action to wealth or power accumulation are wrong. Such mistaken understanding of man leads to equally defective ethical viewpoints, leading to wrong decision-making or poor legal frameworks. The materialistic view is condemned and spiritual values together with the role of the family and society are exalted by the Holy See. It calls the attention of the to the reality of a life of communion as taught by the church and proposes its doctrine as the necessary framework for proper understanding of economics. The Holy See rightly warns against giving too much weight to measures of gross domestic product in economic analysis and encourages the use more, to use more comprehensive criteria of well-being, including security, health, human capital, and quality of human relationships and of work. Profit should not be total, the totalizing objective of economic action. However, humanistic standards, culture, and generosity should also be acknowledged and encouraged. Truth, goodness, and solidarity are values to be pursued. The Holy See expresses that profits are subordinated to integral promotion of the human person, the universal destination of goods, and the preferential option of, for the poor. It expresses the importance of the four principles of Catholic social doctrine, dignity of the human person, common good, solidarity, and subsidiarity. Markets are not outside the political realm, and they also require proper regulation, as they cannot assure in themselves that what they need for their proper functioning, like institutions, safety, and honesty, for example. The Holy See warns about situations in which the principle of caveat emptor is applied, that is, the principle that the buyer is responsible to know what he buys. Many transactions in finance, for example, especially those related to complex financial products, 
can have the buyer in disadvantage with respect to the seller in what respects to information. Such situations require responsible exercise from the transacting parties, and it is certainly condemnable that the party take advantage of another. Other situations of inferiority of one of the parties can be presented, and not only related to information. Any abuse in these situations is condemnable. The Holy See warns about the danger of devaluing work and giving money an excessive value. Decent work is also a means to belonging to society. A caring society looks after its more vulnerable members. Credit has a proper function in society and is necessary and good. Interest rates must be such that they are not excessive, as usurious activities are iniquitous, and they hurt the economy, and more importantly, they hurt justice. <coughs> Financial activities <coughs> are meant to help the real economy, <coughs> intermediating between saving and investment. When objectionable financial transactions are of a large magnitude, the damage can amount to a disaster. The financial crisis of 2008 is one example. Financial crises that create sovereign debt crises, sometimes in conjunction with banking crises, are examples of true economic calamities. The Holy See calls for proper regulation of financial markets in order to foster the common good. International transactions with the objective of avoiding regulation are unethical, detrimental to the common good, and can be highly destructive. Spillovers of negative effects can affect multiple countries, giving international dimension to negative outcomes. Some financial agents achieve such a preeminence that overcomes the legitimate political authorities, and when particular interests are put above those <coughs> of the general public, grave damage can be done. The regulatory activity must be effective and adapt to changing circumstances. Economic actors must readily accept proper regulations for the benefit of the society. International cooperation among regulators is also necessary to foster the common good. The Holy See warns against episodes of financial exuberance that can end in crisis and encourage regulators to prevent them. Separation of commercial banking from investment banking can help reduce systemic risks. And complete disclosure of investment activities and risk involved can reduce the possibility of agents being exposed to excessive risk inadvertently. Financial advisors also must be responsible in their fiduciary duties. Financial management detrimental to customers is unethical. The Holy See reminds this reader that corporate culture affects the society and responsible corporate citizen is a duty. Profits cannot be the top objective above the common good. Also shareholders' preeminence above these other stakeholders is wrong. Justice demands that every actor receives what is due. Also excessive focus on the short-term results may be neglecting the duty of taking care of long-term results. The Holy See warns of the dangers created when the assessment of creditworthiness is unclear and that any misrepresentation is objectionable. The creation of excessively complex securities that pro can provide an opportunity for opacity and should be avoided, as excessive risk-taking and even fraudulent activities can proliferate in opaque, opaque environments. An, excessive, an example is provided by the securitization of supply mortgages before the crisis of 2008, also, the credit default swaps, which, can affect, which affect payments in cases of default, can provide an opportunity for abuse, especially when they are transacted without an underlying real risk that needs to be mitigated. But with the intention of betting on economic events, 
Such gambling is unethical when it profits with the disgrace of others and even may cause it by triggering market runs. The Holy See explains how commendable, condemnable fraud is and how prone are financial activities to it. The example of the manipulation of the interest rates in interbank loans by its sheer magnitude makes it clear. The focus on compliance and merely on the letter of the regulations and with the objective of to escape sanctions is insufficient. The ethical behavior must be comprehensive and must be adopted at the highest corporate level. Something similar is demanded with respect to tax compliance, as tax avoidance is unethical too. The Holy See warns against lending of financial operations that are undertaken from outside the regulated financial entities. Some of those operations may be detrimental to the common good. They are readily objectionable when transactions are done in those environments with the purpose of avoiding regulation, or even to circumvent anti-money laundering regulations, or to finance illegal activities. The use of offshore jurisdictions to avoid regulators' watch is also objectionable. When these activities have the purpose of tax evasion and tax avoidance, they are also unethical. The use of fiscal havens to avoid legitimate taxation is unethical as well. The authorities have the right and sometimes the duty to control financial flows with special restrictions when related to tax havens or offshore financial institutions that do not comply with minimum regulations. International cooperation in this regard is praiseworthy. The Holy See calls for responsible public financial management and expresses concerns for excessive public indebtedness and the losses to the public sector that come with poor policy making. It adds how corruption can also lead to losses for the public and in extreme cases, looting of the public sector. Excessive indebtedness also creates currency crisis and burdens economic growth and welfare. The crisis, and crisis also can spill over from one country to another in a dangerous way. Sometimes debt becomes unsustainable, and a change in the terms of the debt may be required, which calls for solidarity to those who, that can provide help to countries in need. The Holy See reminds everybody of its responsibilities, even to the level of individuals and families which can shape the society with the aggregate impact of their political and economic decisions as they influence markets by the everyday interactions in the marketplace. Paying attention to ethical consequences of every purchase and choosing to buy or sell also according to moral implications and those actions, uh, of those actions, assessing to the extent that is possible the moral behavior of the mount counterparts in each transaction, including the whole value chain of product or purchase products. An ethical behavior should be a reason to reject dealing with somebody or some firm. Companies that have profits as their supreme value should not find support from morally driven economic agents. Consumers must make ethical criteria prevail in the marketplace. Corporate social responsibility should lead the decisions of business managers as well. Business should have ethical behavior as the supreme criteria. The Holy See concludes with the right call to action. And even when a person can feel impotence in front of the adversity and feel tempted to fall in cynicism. I would add that with the Lord, everything is possible. Rightly so, there is a call to individual and collective action through associations with human dignity and the common good as objectives established on the principles of solidarity and subsidiarity. Is all this anti-market rhetoric? No, 
it is a list of things that can go wrong and often do to encourage moral human beings to behave to a higher standard. It is also good proposals to improve financial management and to give regulators and authorities guidance about things that can be done. Is it to work against the market? It is not. The market is good and needs proper institutions. As anything human, a market, a market can be abused by those that seek to serve themselves at the cost of others. Proper, properly regulating a market is not going against the market, but protecting the market from abuses. In the same way that proper laws protect society and enhance freedom, good regulations foster free markets and free enterprise. It will, I will propose some ways to address the legitimate concerns of the Holy See in ways that serve justice without hurting freedom. The proposal will not diminish long-term growth prospects. On the contrary, they will provide higher and more stable growth, increasing prosperity. The readers that think that regulation will help markets are invited to think that markets will be served by diminishing the abuse that some market participants may make of markets, allowing them to function better. I will do now a commentary on the response of the regulators to this ethical consideration. A few months after the, its publication, Christopher Giancarlo, chairman of the US Commodities Futures Trading Commission, and Bruce Truckman, its chief economist, issued a response to Economica, which contains some ethical considerations about finance issued by the Holy See. After praising dialogue about ethical considerations in finance, the author says, said that der der derivatives allow the shift of the, to shift the cost of risk from those that cannot afford it to those that can. It is true that it allows it, and that many transactions do it. However, the argument minimizes the possibility that risk ends up in the hands of people that are less able to afford it than those do that unload it. The risk can be hidden behind transactions that are poorly understood by some parties. Then it is not only a matter of ability to afford the risk, but a matter of willingness to take it. It is also a matter of understanding the risks involved in transactions. Much of the willingness to make transactions comes, in many actors, from their ability to disguise the risk and place it in the hands of third parties that will eventually hold it inadvertently. So the desired effect of moderating the price fluctuations and bringing transparency to markets gives sometimes place to the opposite, in which the derivatives serve to increase the opacity of markets and exacerbate the volatility that creates crisis. The need for regulation is clear, and calling for better and more stringent regulation is right. The author should talk about the problems where regulation is poor or insufficient, and how regulation is good and necessary. They present themselves as under the title of senior regulators, which means the regulation is good and necessary, and that is what they do. It happens instead that the readers of the document could doubt they see themselves as senior regulators. The authors provide examples about uses and benefits of derivatives, but the examples fail to convince. They are too simplistic, and the reader does not get the idea of how representative they are of the financial transactions under discussion. 
they are, there is not an excessive, an extensive or detailed effort to explain what is argued by the Holy See and why it, its considerations are wrong. The defense of the purchase of credit default swaps from people that do not hold bonds of, at risk of default and the short sale of securities are both strikingly unconvincing. The reader in the end cannot understand clearly what the problem of the position of the Holy See is and what would be the solution of a, or a better recommendation. At most, it seems like an apology of no regulation at all, which is an odd position to read from the senior regulators. The defense of speculative activity is even less convincing. Some general principles are enunciated and the reader is asked to take them at face value with no objection, and based on them, discard the recommendations of the Holy See without understanding what was wrong in his recommendation. The authors, in their conclusion, agree with the Holy See in that there are cases of credit default swaps that are objectionable and can cause trouble, like it happened in the financial crisis of 2008 that had financial derivatives at its center. They also agree with the condemnation of those investors that would cause or make more likely defaults with which they could profit. However, the authors do not elaborate on why such cases do not give credit to the recommendations of the Holy See. Moreover, they do not say what regulations have been or should be put in place to prevent related risk or mitigate their consequences. The regulators fail again to show clearly that they live up to their responsibility, even when they express their praiseworthy commitment to regulate markets properly, and they aim to advance in liberty, truth, and justice. To conclude, the senior regulators of the most prominent institution that regulates the markets under which they operate Actors which fall under the criticism of the Holy See decide by answer to answer to the Holy See, and they do so by rejecting all the recommendations and any criticism without giving compelling reasons and without detailed argumentation. They fail to acknowledge their role as regulators. I encourage them to revise their opinion and, on this matter and to engage the Holy See in a more detailed and articulated document. So some proposals for addressing the concerns of the Holy See in a fair and efficient way. The overall calls for more just society and better economic institutions for the service of man are appropriate in the Holy See and all regulators recognize their value. With respect to the specific policies that may be implemented, I briefly enumerate a few that can be undertaken, are perfectly compatible with property rights, freedom and justice, and make sense from an economic point of view. <coughs> First, <coughs> tax credit default swaps by participants that do not hold the security of risk at risk of default. Likewise, tax the short selling of securities. Similarly, tax non-deliverable forwards. These transactions seem to be used in ways that exceed the mitigation of risk and are exacerbating risks and market volatility, creating negative externalities that justify taxation to reduce their amount and internalize the costs. The proceeds of the taxes can be used to improve financial stability by funding the regulatory authorities and providing funds for eventual bailouts. The tax does not need to be formally a tax levied by an act of Congress. It can be simply be established by, the administ by administrative fees mandated by the regulator to market participants which would allow for optimal fine-tuning over time. 
Second, the need for adequate and complete financial reporting and disclosure of risks related to securities is something well recognized by market participants and regulators. We have seen an improvement in this in this area over the years, and the whole issue is encouraging progress in this area, something to be supported. Third, there is a room to rebalance the source of revenue, lowering the effective ra rates of taxation of labor income and compensating with higher taxation of capital income especially capital gains. Proposals in that direction would increase fairness in taxation, bringing higher legitimacy to public finances, and decreasing the appeal of socialism and other political proposals that are detrimental to property rights, freedom, and justice. Fourth, government bailouts of financial institutions are to be done with purpose-specific funds that come from taxes to the financial sector. It is obvious that bailouts can be necessary but they must be limited in size and frequency as much as possible, with proper financial regulation and other policies. For example, monetary policy has to properly account for the financial sector's disruption, generated by two contracted policies, or for the financial exuberance created by two expansive policies. But even if bailouts become necessary, they should be funded through financial sector taxes. The Federal Deposit Insurance Commission is a good example of how these policies are desirable. Fifth, government should renew their efforts to reduce tax avoidance through international investment and deceitful transfer pricing, which both can allow market participants to avoid paying a fair share of taxes. Recent initiatives to homogenize corporate tax rates and to better allocate the fiscal duties of digital business are praiseworthy. Six, the call to responsible fi public financial management is to be supported. There is excessive public spending, which leads to higher fiscal deficit and debt. There is too much wasteful spending and too many government programs that do not merit their existence. Corporate welfare also needs to be reduced and frequently ends up in agency capture in ways that are unfair. Now I will turn to some drawbacks in the document. I will still have some considerations to make about the document of the Holy See, because the Holy See adopts lines of thought that may be detrimental to the objectives it proclaims. Certain ideas in the document debilitate the overall efficacy of the message. Here I will quote with more care because this is a serious criticism. The Holy See says, quote, the church pursues these aims with the certainty that in every culture there are multiple areas of ethical agreement that expresses a common moral wisdom and from, form the objective under which and objective order, sorry, upon which the dignity of the person is founded, end quote. This, is unfor this unfortunate statement detracts moral authority to the Holy See, as it puts the Catholic doctrine in equal standing to any other cultural moral standard. He continues, quote, from the solid and indispensable basis of such an order arise the clear and common principles that establish the fundamental rights and duties of the human person, without which the control and abuse of the most powerful would come to dominate the entire human scene, unquote. Unfortunately, this basis may not be solid and may reinforce the abuse of the powerful. He continues, quote, this ethical order rooted in the wisdom of God the Creator is therefore the indispensable foundation for building a worthy community of persons regulated by truly just laws. 
unquote. I should add that this order, if it's not Christian, is not rooted in the wisdom of God. The documents also says, quote, every person is born with family and environment, enjoying a set of pre-existing relationships, which, without which the life would be impossible. The human person develops through the stages of life thanks to pre-existing bonds that actualize one's being in the world as freedom continuously shared. These are the original bonds that define the human person as a relational being who lives in what Christian revelations calls communion, end quote. I think this statement reduces Christian communion to simple societal interpersonal relationships that may be very different from what God intends it to be. It is not that the church calls communion these social relationships found in every society. The church presents a very different type of relationship that under the name of communion put men in union with each other and in union with God according to his laws. The document says also, quote, numerous associations emerging from civil society representing this sense a reservoir of consciousness and social responsibility of which we cannot do without, end quote. This is most, a most unfortunate statement, as the reservoir of consciousness is not any single association, nor any number of them except the Catholic Church with her doctrine. Last, the document uses economic lexicon in a way that is imprecise, awkward, or utterly wrong. The economic reasoning behind some of the arguments can be qualified in the same way. It seems that the participation of professional mainstream economists in the drafting of the document was marginal. This is a big mistake because the readers that need to take action, the most important audience of the document, are discouraged from taking it seriously. This and other statements reduce the efficacy of the document, inclusive by diminishing the authority of the church, making it comparable to, any, to that of any other religion or institution interested in the common good. The Holy See is right in calling the attention of policymakers and market participants to a higher ethical standard. The problems are real, and there are policy actions and corporate behaviors that can reduce, produce significant improvements, contributing to the common good in freedom and justice. Policymakers, business people, and economists are called to do their part. Thank you. The, the origin of this project was some of the comments made by the current pontiff which seemingly, uh, a current pontiff who seemingly is going out of his way to reject over a hundred years of Catholic social thought, uh, particularly as that social thought relates to the value of the free market. While the popes have always had their skepticism about the free market and about any economic system that is based solely on economic as opposed to both economic and ethical principles, uh, some of the recent comments uh, by the current pontiff have uh, uh, exacerbated the, uh, the negative part of that and the negative view of free market thinking. I'll give you an example or two in just a second. But again, that was the, um, that was the origin of this, uh, my own thinking about, uh, well, how do we, 
clarify what, uh, uh, what really are the points of intersection. Where do Catholic social thinkers and free market theorists find points of agreement? That was my first thought. Now, my collaboration with Ms. Richardson uh, came because Hollins University instituted a program this past summer in which 12 students were able to remain on campus this summer, uh, receive a stipend, and work with a faculty member on, a, on a, an uh, academic project. Uh, so, uh, and this was across disciplines. Uh, some of the students were uh, measuring the impact of noise on plants. Uh, so they were out measuring leaves and, and seeing how many pollinators were there uh, in a quiet road and then in a more noisy road. And uh, it was, uh, there were a number of other fascinating projects going on at the same time. Uh, Kayla and I uh, uh, worked together on this and essentially we divided the, uh, the labor this way. I would find some appropriate sources, what I thought were appropriate sources to explore these points of intersection, understanding Catholic social thought, understanding free market theory, and then seeing where they overlap. And having identified the sources, I would ask Ms. Richardson to uh, summarize them for me. And uh, so that we, I, she would summarize them, I would take notes on that. And then I essentially used her notes in order to draft my portions of the paper. So it is a true collaborative effort, uh, This exactly the sort of thing that this uh, um, fellowship program was supposed to promote and uh, hopefully uh, will become the first of many such summer programs at Hollins University. And one other introductory comment, uh, the, um, uh, uh, as though we did not have enough pressure already uh, delivering a paper like this to an audience like this, uh, the president of our university uh, noted that we are going to be working together on this and asked for a copy of the paper so that she could read it and comment on it as well. So. Uh, uh, if you're at a university where you have a college president who is genuinely interested in your academic work in the classroom, then you probably know how rare that is and how special that is to, uh, to have an academic uh, president, a university president with that sort of interest. So um, since we had the board meeting last week, she hasn't given us those comments yet, but uh, we're both on sort of pins and needles uh, waiting to hear what she has to say about it. <clears throat> so, okay. So let's begin here. Mr. Chairman, if you'll give, a, give us a five-minute warning and then a two-minute warning, I would appreciate it. Thank you. Few areas of Catholic teaching and reflection have resulted in more confusion, misappropriation, or misapplication, and outright distortion than the Catholics, uh, Catholic Church's view on uh, economic and social thought. Some observers uh, perceiving the Church to be an unswervingly conservative organization uh, view, naturally believe that it will embrace the free market in all of its particulars. Uh, others brought up on stories of how Vatican II and the Council at Vatican II uh, changed everything and set the church on a leftward course uh, would be surprised at the church's criticism of socialism, a very deep criticism of socialism. And since the publication of Rerum Novarum, which is what really kicked this off uh, in uh, uh, the late 19th century, critics have sought to cat categorize Catholic social thought as conservative, as liberal. Sometimes people, will, uh, scholars will refer to it as a sort of third way between capitalism and socialism. The writings of individual popes have also been categorized over the year with Pius XI perhaps and John Paul II referred to as conservative and then John XXIII and Francis uh, uh, referred to as liberal. 
Well, of course, in fact, all of the popes have rejected those sorts of labels, uh, ab initio and in toto. Uh, they have condemned elements of both capitalism and socialism, even while endorsing some of those philosophies' more salient features. Catholic social thought is impossible to characterize in solely economic and political terms because that's not why, what the popes were primarily writing about, as, as my colleague just pointed out. They are coming at it from a different set of philosophical priorities. So this is going to, this paper is going to explore some of those uh, priorities, and then we'll look at free market theory, uh, starting with Adam Smith, and end with uh, our consideration of where the points of overlap are. In Rome today, we hear little but blunt and really vituperative criticism of capitalism coming from the current pope. In an address in the United States, the perceived capital, or capital of free market thinking, he used language that for Pope Francis has become more or less typical, and I'll read a quotation here. The economic system that has the god of money at its center and that sometimes acts with the brutality of the robbers in the parable inflicts injuries that to a criminal degree have remained neglected. Globalized society frequently looks the other way with the pretense of innocence the unemployment of capitalism is real, the violence is real, the corruption is real, the identity crisis is real, the gutting of democracies is real. The system's gangrene, his word, cannot be whitewashed forever because sooner or later the stench becomes too strong. Those are not the measured words of Pius XI or Leo XIII or, for that matter, even John Twenty-Third, who was perhaps a little bit more skeptical about capitalism than some of his colleagues in the chair of St. Peter. In Bolivia in 2015, the Pope was even harsher. Another direct quote, the earth, entire peoples, and individual persons are being brutally punished. And behind all this pain, death, and destruction, there is the stench of what, there's stench again, the stench of what Basil of Caesarea called, quote, the dung of the devil, unquote. An unfettered pursuit of money rules. At the same time, the current pope has muted the century-old Roman Catholic uh, skepticism and rejection of socialism. In a speech to UN executives, the current pope praised the legitimate redistribution of wealth by the state. In his June, 15, June 2015 encyclical, Laudato Si, he attacks what he calls consumerism and irresponsible development and suggests more thoroughgoing state regulation and restriction of investments as the proper response. While previous pontiffs have certainly condemned elements of capitalism, which they often refer to not as capitalism, but as lay liberalism, Francis's comments contain much harsher language than, many of it, than any of his predecessors, at least that I found, or that we have found. Given the evident departure by the current pope, Given his evident hostility towards free market economics, it's in, it is vital to examine where Catholic social thought and free market theory intersect to see if the teachings of the church and the theories of people like Adam Smith are indeed completely incompatible. So one of the, uh, obviously we begin with rerum novarum. Uh, to begin a discussion of Catholic social thought uh, uh, and not bring that in is sort of like talking about American baseball in the 1920s without mentioning Babe Ruth. So uh, uh, we begin with that. Uh, I probably, uh, we probably don't have to go into a lot of detail on rerum novarum to this particular audience. Uh, um, 
And uh, uh, to my mind, the, uh, the most comprehensive and the most useful in the late 20th and early 21st century commentaries uh, came from John Paul II, who uh, in his long pontificate wrote a number of encyclicals uh, marking different anniversaries and um, uh, uh, adding his own particular thoughts to the question of, of Catholic social thought. He was not the first, uh, Leo XIII was not the first to address this, although he was the first to address it in modern times. Uh, but uh, consideration of economic matters uh, has a much deeper history than that. And Ms. Richard is, Richardson is going to talk some about that history. Um, all right, so aside from Ram Navarum being the one of the major documents that we looked into, we also looked into the four gospels. Um, and one of the main things that we found when looking at it is a big emphasis on giving wealth to others, not necessarily through the government, but through one's own personal moralities. Um, there was a big emphasis on the last will come first and the first will come last. So you shouldn't be too worried about wealth that is on earth when one of the bigger wealths will be in the afterlife. And so we then went on to refinements by the late scholastics. And so other Catholic writers addressed economic and social issues through the centuries and major advances were made by um, the late scholastics in the 14th century. And they differed from the old scholastics in various ways, um, starting with the fact that they didn't really believe in, they didn't believe that private property in and of itself was immoral. Um, there were thoughts from some of the old scholastics that it wasn't proper to have private property um, because there was this idea that it's okay to suffer while being on earth since the good things will come in the afterlife. But um, the late scholastics said, no, like that's kind of been interpreted wrong. It's okay to have private property. And there are some assumptions that private property exists because of the things like the seventh commandment saying like, um, thou shalt not steal, meaning you have something to steal. Um, the late scholastics also created various theories such as the theory of money, price, and value. Um, their theory of money included multiple observations such as that money is used because it's more convenient than barter just because it has a unit of measurement for exchanges. Um, they also thought that money changed value depending on the quantity of it, and people's idea of money changed its value as well. Um, multiple late scholastics also saw it as necessary for the value of money to be consistent in order to keep the faith of the citizens. Um, the price and value theory are quite similar um, because the late scholastics derived the price of theory from their value theory, um, and it also explained that an important factor of determining price is the common estimation. Um, and we will now get into the foundational philosophical issues in Catholic social thought. All right, thank you. So um, where are we? And <clears throat> starting with the Gospels, looking at uh, scholastic uh, efforts to get into these issues over the centuries, what are the, uh, the points that are most salient and uh, uh, most valuable in our opinion? 
these are the philosophical, what we found to be the foundational philosophical issues in Catholic social thought. And we begin with the primacy of human beings. Uh, and my colleague uh, brought this out in his paper uh, that an economic system that is based solely on profit, solely on economic matters, that does not put human beings at the top of the list and at the beginning of their consideration is an unethical treatment of economic and social questions as far as the Catholic Church is concerned. We move on from there uh, to the theology of work. In early Catholic theology, in, well, I'm sorry, in some theologies, work is seen solely as a punishment uh, based on the words in Genesis. Uh, it was a result of sin. Uh, for man, the punishment was work. For women, pain and childbirth. And these are, these are curses that were put on human beings. John Paul II really addressed that most clearly in Laborum Exorcens, his first Catholic, uh, his first social uh, encyclical in, um, I believe, 1981, <clears throat> in which he uh, noted that work is a quintessentially human activity. Indeed, only human beings can do work uh, properly understood. Other creatures can expend effort, but it's not directed towards a goal that comes from the mind. And as such, work has to be understood as something that perhaps should not have existed, but because of redemption and because of uh, uh, the nature of human beings after the fall, work, like anything else, could be redeemed as well and uh, could be turned into something positive. It uh, allows human beings to have a sense of accomplishment. It allows human beings to uh, uh, to do exactly what God enjoined Adam and Eve to do, which is to tend the garden and to uh, uh, improve life on earth, uh, to use our intellectual tools as well as our physical tools in order to make things better. I thought it was uh, 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 noteworthy that in that encyclical, uh, he, uh, the Pope noted that Jesus did not um, uh, make the Eucharist out of wheat and grapes, but rather out of bread and wine, both of which require human labor in order to exist. If there's a clearer blessing on human labor uh, for the Pope, it is hard to imagine what it might be. Private property is, uh, uh, comes with great responsibility, but it ex its existence is presumed in the uh, writings of the Roman Catholic Popes. While there can be considerable restrictions on its use, uh, based on the universal destination of goods, based on other ethical principles, the presumption that it exists is part and parcel of Catholic social thought. And perhaps closely related to that is distrust of government. Uh, government, I, I think most of the popes would agree with the, uh, uh, the stricture of George Washington that government is not eloquence, it is not justice, it is force. It is a fearsome servant and a dangerous master. I believe that's a direct quote from George Washington, and the popes agree with that, that uh, um, following the, um, the work of the, uh, our, um, trusting too much to government is a very, very dangerous thing to do. And now we'll get into what economic and, so, and political priorities come from these philosophical bases. Um, so one of the priorities of the church was addressing inequality. Um, the church recognizes that inequalities exist, but they also believe that these will exist until the second coming of Christ. And due to that, there shouldn't necessarily be a need to eradicate it just because that is impossible. But they do believe that 
um, one should work towards lessening that degree. Um, oh, this is a heavy mic. <laughs> um, they noted the wide and growing gap between the rich and the poor and thought that it was important to lessen that gap rather than doing away with it altogether. Um, something of equal importance is that the church believes that poverty comes in many other forms other than monetary. Um, there's the idea that it can come from drug abuse, isolation, or even poor health. Um, and that no matter what form of poverty someone is in, they should always be assisted rather than just being seen as a burden. Um, but as mentioned previously, this assistance should not be forced through the government. It should be through someone's own free will. And um, there's a big emphasis on donation and making sure to spread your wealth on your own rather than having it be done through taxes because of that distrust um, through government that Dr. Lynch previously mentioned. Um, and if the government takes matters into its own hands, there's um, this taking away from the common man the opportunity to perform a virtuous act by giving voluntarily and generously. Um, and so then we move on to the rejection of socialism. Um, this is something that many of the previous popes did. Um, while there has been commentaries on capitalism and the negatives of that, it was much more seen through socialism um, for a multitude of reasons. Um, for one, the authors um, believe that socialism is too materialistic and therefore does not take into account the dignity of the human being. And rather than focusing on the actual person, the church believes that Marx considered man one part of a larger whole rather than just man himself. Um, John Paul II in particular pins this mistake of Marxism on atheism and explains that it's atheism that led to the conclusion of class struggle. And so one of the emphases that was found in the church was that rather than thinking of class struggle, people should be working together as a whole. Um, rather than kind of working against each other, there should be this idea of togetherness. Um, and Pope John Paul II also condemned the proposition to overthrow the bourgeoisie by doing whatever was necessary, including violence. And his goal was for all workers to just come together for the common good. Um, another reason the church doesn't endorse socialism is because of socialism's belief in collectivism. Um, socialism as an institution places too much power in the government and doesn't give property to the people. And the church differs greatly. Um, they believe that everyone has a right to property, even if this right is not absolute. There were some instances in which property should not be given to someone, which I think you will get into later. Um, Pope John Paul II also explains that rather than bringing cl people closer together the way Marx argued, collectivism increases alienation. And so he also thought that Marx had the wrong idea of what alienation was and that while alienation exists, the true definition should be more connected to God and it needs to have more religious roots than what Marx came up with. Um, and then we get into the importance of education and from a free market realm or a more, um, 
I'm blanking on what word I'm asking for. But um, the importance yeah. of the importance of education. Um, it's important for human beings. And also because it helps lead to eventually finding work, which is something that makes man more human. Um, and then we move on to the primacy of civil society organizations. And one of those that we brought up was protection for families. Um, one of the most important ones, and John Paul II also recognizes the family as the first and most fundamental part of the human ecology um, due to it being the place where one is first socialized. Um, Pope John Paul II also stressed that there's a necessity for a society in which three subjects exist, which is the market, the state, and civil society. And um, Pope Benedict the 16th elaborates on this and explains that economic life should be multi-layered and that aspects of fraternal reciprocity should be seen in each fitted specifically to each layer. Um, I, yeah, um, we'll now move on to free market theory. Um, and so one of the big people that we started with was Adam Smith, who was the author of The Wealth of Nations and The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Um, I'm sure as some of you know he's considered the father of free market economics. He created multiple theories that were relevant to our readings, especially when it comes to the philosophy of human being. Um, and he also spoke on the ideas of justice and injustice. Um, but one of the relevant findings that we had was that Adam Smith is not necessarily as libertarian as most people have presumed him to be. Um, some of these were found from Nicholas Wolstersoff, who concluded that um, due to his ideology of seeing justice as integral to society, he often made arguments that it was important for the government to balance people treating each other justly without impeding liberty, security, and justice. Um, and from that, I think we can move on to foundational philosophical issues. All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, so now we'll talk about uh, some of the foundational philosophical issues in free market theory. Uh, perhaps most foundational is the belief in human beings as rational decision makers. Uh, if there is a metaphysics to free market theory, that's, that's where you're going to find it, in the, uh, in the belief that, uh, that most human beings under most circumstances, most of the time, are fully competent to make their own personal economic decisions. And that uh, uh, given the freedom to make those decisions, under, again, under most circumstances, most of the time, uh, human beings uh, will make decisions that will not only benefit themselves, but indirectly will benefit the economy of, as a whole. In other words, if I invent a better mousetrap uh, and uh, am solely interested in making a billion dollars by selling this better mousetrap, uh, I have also benefited millions of other people by helping them to deal with their mouse problem. Uh, I may not have had that altruistic thought in mind. I only want to make money for Adam Smith, but in so doing, I am doing what, uh, what one person defined uh, as the essence of capitalism, which is satisfying free, mar free customers. Uh, this goes to the concept of consumer sovereignty, uh, which is fundamental to free market theory as well, uh, which, is, which takes the, 
the, the Smithian concept that people will usually act in their own economic self-interest, and it adds an ethical layer to it. People should be allowed to act in their own uh, economic self-interest. So can, uh, the, can we find morality then in the market? The free market theorists embrace of individual choice uh, would seem to suggest a reluctance to, ex to uh, assess the morality of those economic choices. In other words, I can make a billion dollars by making a better mousetrap. I can also make a billion dollars by making a better system for viewing pornography. Uh, <clears throat> the free market system in its, in its essence does not make much of a distinction between those two ways of making money. Insofar as Smith's provided an, an ethical system, it was a subjective one in which the intention and intensity of feeling are standards for judging moral decisions. One author writes, whether an action is decent or ungraceful is determined by whether or not the intensity of the sentiment that caused it is proportionate to its cause. But such ethical indifference does not have a basis in the in the thought of Adam Smith himself. Among the most vital character traits that individuals must have for the market to work, according to Smith, is prudence. As one expert put it, prudence is the cardinal virtue of Smith's moral system that most clearly serves to promote self-interest and commercial society. But even this virtue pales in comparison to the importance of self-command. It is for Smith linked to propriety and it serves as the basis for other virtues in Smith's estimation. Self-command is necessary to control human passions that could lead to actions causing the positive harm that Smith finds worthy of punishment. Self-command involves self-denial, self-government, and quote, that command of the passions which subjects all the movements of our nature to what our own dignity and honor and the propriety of our conduct require. Now, in the paper itself, we're able to go into some of these things in a little bit more depth. Uh, we're going to move towards a conclusion at this point and talk about some points of intersection between free market theory and Catholic social thought. And the first of these that we list in the part three of our paper is the, uh, the mutual acceptance of human beings as rational decision makers and human beings who must be given the freedom to make their own decisions in, in the ethical realm and in the economic realm, uh, both for the salvation of their souls and for the benefit of society. Neither free market theory nor Catholic social thought, nor indeed Catholic morality writ large, uh, really has any meaning if free choice is removed from the equation. Uh, if there is no freedom of choice, then, there, then we're not ethical creatures. Uh, we're acting on instinct or some other, something else which, uh, which does not have the human component to it. So that, that acceptance uh, of human beings as rational decision makers is a major point of intersection. Um, as mentioned previously, um, private property is another point of intersection. Given the foundational importance of human freedom, it follows that that freedom is worthy of protection. And so while some of the popes placed philosophical restrictions on the use of private property, all insisted on the right of individuals to own property and to use said property to earn a living. Um, and that's even more important to free market theory, of course. 
Um, both philosophies see a direct connection between private property and human freedom that was just mentioned. Another point of intersection is the insistence that reward uh, that labor and investment be rewarded. Uh, both philosophies insist that there be a reward for these things. Uh, whether that reward should be unlimited, whether it should be regulated, those are really points of detail, uh, having accepted the principle that labor and investment ought to be rewarded. Uh, Leo XIII made the point that uh, taxation must be imposed very, very carefully and even reluctantly since it takes from someone the fruits of their labor and in a sense takes the labor from the working person directly. Uh, and you've all seen the estimates uh, how many months of the year you have to work just to pay your taxes before you're able to keep anything at all for yourself. That's labor that you are um, uh, that you are giving to the government, not to mention the labor that's involved in filling out your tax return. Uh, uh, estimates are done about how much free accounting work the, uh, uh, the government gets from us all every year. So that desire to reward is another point of intersection. Um, we also got into the importance of education, which was previously mentioned for Catholic social thought. Um, and while the importance of education is something that is emphasized in free market theory, there are disagreements on whether or not the government should be able to intervene in providing it. Um, Smith in particular argued that the government can intervene for the sake of education due to its importance. Um, and he also makes the point that education is important even for things we cannot buy. And the mass of people need to be educated for a democratic rule to work. And this goes to yet another point of overlap and intersection, which is the importance of developing human capital. Uh, this is important to both philosophies. And, uh, education is an essential part of this. Uh, uh, both prefer a more educated populace and a more... Uh, um, uh, a more broadly educated po populace as opposed to a less educated populace, uh, whether it's to make economic decisions or to make ethical decisions. So in both cases, uh, human capital is something that is worthy of development uh, and uh, whose development is considered to be quite urgent. And uh, um, the last point of intersection is that distrust of government, uh, the belief that uh, uh, government uh, intervention in the economy uh, is it, it could be, as our colleague pointed out, uh, it could be uh, quite beneficial in some ways. Uh, uh, the, uh, the Catholic Church uh, tries to square the circle by insisting on a lot of restrictions on capitalism on the individual level. That is, you know, don't do it just for profit, make the mousetrap, don't make the pornography, that sort of thing with also wanting a, a limited government. And Catholic social thought seeks to square that circle by emphasizing the principle of subsidiarity. Uh, that is to begin experiments in government regulation on a smaller scale, see how they work, and then if, if appropriate, apply them to a larger scale. So uh, let us conclude then. Uh, the angry words of Pope Francis notwithstanding, a reasonably thorough examination of the basic core philosophical precepts of Catholic social thought and free market theory show significant areas of overlap and intersection. Francis is not the first pope to recognize or to highlight the considerable dangers of economic efficiency stripped of any moral leavening. 
one of the more frustrating things about this current papacy is how many times Francis is credited with doing something for the first time uh, that has been done many, many times before. Uh, I specifically remember soon after his pontificate began, uh, uh, people in the mainstream media were breathless over the fact that he was in St. Peter's hearing confessions, which John Paul did, which Benedict did. It was, it's very frustrating. So uh, uh, maybe he believes it himself. I don't know that he's the first one to discover that there is an, an ethical problem with free market capitalism. He is not the first to note the inadequacy of personal economic gain as a guide to ethical actions in the economic realm of human activity. Such concerns are as old as Catholic social thought itself and indeed go back to the New Testament. Echoes of Christ's words of warning about laying up treasures on earth can be heard in the writings of Thomas Aquinas, the late scholastics, both of whom wrote long before Pope Francis. But the current pope does not pay sufficient attention to the dangers presented by some purported cures for the excesses of capitalism, most notably socialism. In muting his criticism of socialist states, Francis ignores some of the most important points of intersection between Catholic social thought and free market thinking, such as the rejection of materialism, the primacy of the person, and the understanding of human persons as rational, autonomous creatures with the right and capacity to make their own economic choices. The Catholic Church has always been an institution with great confidence in human beings' capacity to make the right decisions, even in the economic and social realm. Papal documents that reflect that confidence would be more in line with 130 years of Catholic social thought. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.